0: Words they get golly hard when they jumble jumpin' over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle, murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo Cold blood is with the strops keep, I'm a boss
1: This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about standardized testing and college admissions. I've been thinking about IQ and aptitude, cultural bias, and revisiting our assumptions about what something is intended to do and whether it is actually doing it. I've been thinking about established behaviors and remembering to ask ourselves why. Why are we doing this? What is our intended outcome? What's our objective? Is it something we still value, and is this action still the best path for a Achieving this goal. My guest today is Joe McGovern. Joe's been helping high school students raise their SAT and ACT scores for over a decade. His students have increased their SAT scores as much as 350 points and their ACT scores as much as 10 points. Welcome Joe and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking.
0: Thanks, pleasure to be here.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about how you found yourself in test prep. Um How does your work history foster your ability to help students reach their full potential?
0: Um, good question uh, so I've been involved in education pretty much my whole life when i was uh, when I was sixteen years old. I remember the um the resource officer at um, at my high school uh, Yorktown High School in Arlington, Virginia. He came up to me at one point and says, "Hey, we're looking for some camp counselors for patrol camp, and I thought you'd be a good fit for that." and uh, patrol camp was something that i went to when i was in 5th grade um and the safety patrols would go to a 5 day camp up in the uh, mountains in maryland um it didn't really have much to do with <laughs> being a safety patrol uh we did have like a class in the morning street safety and that kind of stuff but mostly it was just you know playing kickball and and um singing, singing camp songs and that kind of stuff so I, I started working there. Um, that was, uh, there was one week that was uh, patrol camp, and then the other week was called police camp, which was for underprivileged kids in Arlington. And that started my career in working with kids.
1: Okay, the second camp was called police camp?
0: Yeah. So we've got was, patrol
1: was... camp and police camp. I think there's a whole show there. Mm-hmm. Like what what were the objectives <laughs> yeah. of these camps and who titled them?
0: That's a whole another yeah, show. Yeah, good question. So I totally left out the detail that um the safety patrols, the camps were run by the police department. So, um yeah, you know, like the big house. So we I, we lived in the cabins with the kids during the during the week and then um the big houses where all the well, the cops live. <laughs> I was going to say that.
1: Well, oh, I guess that's the, better that so, that's where the big house, the, the police are at least are living in the big house rather than the criminals, <laughs> which is usually the
0: case. Oh, that's right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So uh, just a little lack of creativity on their part. And then you were, um,
1: you were a middle school teacher and a high school teacher, vice principal. Yeah, yeah. Kind of checked all mm-hmm. those boxes.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, after college, I did some volunteer work in the Dominican Republic for a year, working with um, kids down there. And then I came back to Arlington, and I was an assistant teacher in a special ed class. And then I was a resource teacher in a um, high school for kids with learning disabilities. I came out to San Diego, and I was um, a math and science teacher and a vice principal uh, for four years in seventh and eighth grade at a Catholic parochial school outside of uh, San Diego. Um, Then I took a year off and led backpacking trips for troubled teens in the mountains of Utah. And then I came back to Southern California, but this time to Los Angeles and taught at a charter school called Environmental Charter School. Um, for two years, I taught um, high school math. And then I quit teaching to pursue acting in 2006.
1: I was going to say, and um, then Iron was... Man snapped his fingers and a different thread of reality um, <laughs> kicked in and you became a professional soccer player, an marathon runner and an actor.
0: Yeah, so I like... I. I, I do tend to enjoy uh, a good challenge, so I kind of put my I put myself into situations where I can. I know that some of my talents will be used, but I know that I'll have to learn others. So um, running, running, um, running marathons. I ran an ultra marathon last summer. Um, for the professional soccer it was a short period right after I got back from the Dominican Republic, and then the acting, and then most recently, actually. I'm not sure if I, I don't think I put this on my website, but from 2014 to 2016, I took a break from acting and I traveled around the country interviewing conservatives for a documentary that I titled um, The Other Side, A Liberal Democrat Explores Conservative America. So I released that on my website just before the election. But anyway, the whole point of that is just to say that they all in line of, of saying that um, I love challenges. And so driving around the country, interviewing conservatives, trying to have a productive conversation versus an argument um, and listening to uh, things that uh, really made me angry. But trying to get really underneath, like, what is the underlying commitment underneath this thing that on the surface to see where the logic comes from your argument Um Uh, So that was really exciting to me. Like, ooh, how can I deal with feeling so angry and still maintain my curiosity and try to be logical and try to be inquisitive? And now let me
1: go and apply this to the SAT. And it it makes such sense, too, because your (laughs) abilities to listen, to be in a state of discomfort and to not just jump to something but to wait and be patient and to really understand the problems and the issues before you create an approach to resolving them. Um, it, it all makes sense and, and that you're so good at it because you're such a good listener and you're able to decipher what's the, the issue and the statement and the challenge to be able to help kids to see where are they missing the point, right? Where are they getting tripped up? You say, I'm, I'm effective because I love what I do. I love the SAT. We're going to talk about that. I love the SAT and ACT. <laughs> um, to me, they're like fun puzzles to work on and solve. And my excitement about them tends to be contagious, another thing, factor that makes you a fantastic teacher. How do you, what is it about them and and how is it that you view them as fun, the standardized test?
0: I think my mind is is sort of naturally um, attuned to solving problems. Um, You know, while I'm I'm walking my dog, Charlie, in the morning, um, if, if I'm not conscious, my mind is, I mean, I'm conscious. If I'm not like thinking about what I'm thinking about, then what I'm thinking about is solving problems. Like, okay... How much money do my wife and I have in our uh, savings account? How, uh, which what's, our ne- what's the next car we're going to buy? Are we going to stay in Los Angeles? Like all of these, it's just constantly solving problems, kind of exhausting sometimes. Um, so the SAT presents a, a myriad of problems to solve because not only are the problems themselves, you know, I'm a huge math nerd, so I just love, love math. So all of the math problems on the SAT and the ACT are are, are just, um, so much fun to work on me personally. But then there's the, the, the other problem to solve, which is how do I get this material into this kid's head such that, um, he or she can reproduce them on a test and get a good score. Um, but not only that, not just the material, but the actual creative thinking skills. That's the real, that's the real conundrum because, you know, um, we'll probably talk about, you know, intelligence, um, and, um, you know, as it regards, as it relates to the testing um, at some point. But you know, I, I find in my years of in education that you know, yes, everyone can succeed, but everyone is hardwired differently, and people think in different ways. And how can I help um, a a person who's a nonlinear thinking develop the linear thinking skills that are required to take a, a math problem from reading it to understanding it? to uh, finding the correct information, to finding the correct formula, to doing the correct calculations, to uh, applying that back to the problem and then coming up with with the correct answer. It's like five, six, seven, sometimes 10 steps that I need to help a nonlinear thinker uh, sequentialize. So (laughs) that's a really interesting problem for me. You know, how do I do that? And um, one of the things that I love the most about it is how much I have to learn. You know, I... I'll explain a problem and I'll I'll just like sit back and admire my brilliance. Like how well I explained that problem. And then I'm like, how's that? And my student will say, no, I don't understand. So at at that point it takes something for me. And this is a very common, this is a very common um, challenge for educators is uh, how do I sort of swallow my own pride you know, what I really want to say is, no, what I said makes sense. You just didn't get, you know, (laughs) it's almost like a, like a competition or they're they're challenging my like educational ability. So there's a, um, there's a humility that it takes to actually look at my own teaching style. Okay. Something that I, the way that I'm approaching this isn't working. So I have to find a way to a different way to explain a different way to get in there, uh, a different way to present the problem such that the student, this student with this, um, sort of hardwired brain, natural ability, combined with all of the um, learned behaviors, learned knowledge and skills. How do I match all those up to fit this test so that they can succeed? So that they can uh, succeed. And um, that's a really fascinating problem for me to um, to uh, present myself with when uh, when I deal with my students.
1: And so the SAT, something you mentioned, you know, we'll talk about it now, the SAT has been called an aptitude test, an assessment test, a reasoning test, an IQ test, and we'll talk a little bit later about the history of it. Um, and and I'm, I'm wondering, with you having been involved in it, with it for so long, what do you see it as? And is it something that is skill-based as far as you can teach these kids a particular skill um, once you decipher what their learning strategies and abilities are, um, to, to master this skill? Is it a skill? And, and then we'll two talk about like, is the SAT trying to trick you? So is it also a bit of figuring out, you know, the language of the SAT and, and if, what the tricks are? But first off, maybe, is it, is it a skill that can be learned? Or is it really testing aptitude?
0: I think it's both. Uh, it's going to be kind of a lame answer, but it, you know, sort of the nature versus nurture um, question. There are certain like natural abilities, natural uh, thinking patterns uh, that students, uh, students who have those natural thinking abilities, skills, patterns will naturally do well on these tests. Um, but it also is something that can be taught, like I, kind of what I was mentioning before about trying to teach non-linear thinkers how to think linear. Now no one's 100% non-linear and 100% or, and 0% linear or vice versa. Everyone's like a mix of the two, but we we do definitely tend towards one or the other. Um so it's uh it's both. It's a skill that can be uh that um, is mostly i would say um natural in just sort of the hard wiring of the brain um but it's also material so um i can the sat versus the act for example the sat i can teach the material a little bit better in the math because there's less of it the sat tends to like uh, systems of equations quadratics uh, linear algebra um percents um, and word problems. So that's sort of like their favorite thing. So if I can get someone really well versed in quadratics, especially like what zero, how zeros, root solutions, factors, x-intercepts, how all of those relate, um, then uh, that's sort of a limited amount of material that I have to teach. Then the question is, can that student apply all of that material in these new and different ways that the SAT is um, uh, is presenting the problems with? So. Um, So is it a skill or is it material? It's both and is sort of the lame answer.
1: And and are the writers of the SAT intentionally writing them in a way where, and I mean, you could call it a trick or or intending to mislead or just to test something different in that they only want 5% of the population taking the test to get that answer because they want them to go somewhere beyond being able to just do a basic math problem and understand the basics of quadratics or, or whatever it may be testing.
0: Yeah, so uh, my students uh, say that a lot, you know, um, uh, and I, I sort of, you know, we will we'll play around. I'll, I'll banter back and forth with my students from time to time about that the SAT is trying to trick you here. This is the answer that they're trying to lead you to. But I also think it's important for my students to understand that the SAT isn't the enemy, uh, that the SAT, the College Board, is um, has a job to do and their job to do. Um, is to tell the colleges, hey, here are the students in the country. Um, We're going to spread them out on a spectrum for you. Um, And the ones up here at this upper end of the spectrum are the ones that have the skills and knowledge um, and material that it's probably going to take to be successful in college, um, at your college. And, uh, you know, and so we just, so their job is to Yes, doesn't sound very as, as I'm saying it out loud. I'm really realizing how like awful it sounds. But their job is to spread um, all the students out regards uh, with regards to ability or knowledge or skills. So when I tell the kids, tell my students that it's like this is their job. It's their job is to do this. So let's have you. Let's give you the skills, the material, the knowledge, so that you end up on this upper end of that spectrum. So that when the college comes to the SAT and says, "Hey, where did this student score?" You belong in that in that spot. And the skills and knowledge on the SAT are pretty much correlated with the skills that you'll need in college. Some good reading comprehension skills, knowledge of uh, grammar and rhetoric. Um, and but now the math knowledge is sort of maybe the one that maybe people might not need the most. Like it was like balancing your checkbook or understanding the stock market or <clears throat> how to save for your IRA. That might be a little bit more applicable. But what I always tell my students is that it's not really just the math. Like you could go your whole life and not know how a zero is related to a factor in a quadratic equation. So that doesn't matter at all. But do you have the thinking skills to connect this material to this problem and find a creative way towards the solution to that problem. So that's um, I think it's uh, uh, is the so is the SAT trying to trick students? Uh, 100%. Yes, uh, there. You know, the I, I every every problem that I see, especially in the math section, I'll see the answer that they're gearing them towards. If they you know after they do one calculation, there's that number. But to solve the problem, they have to take that number and do a couple more calculations. So they are trying to, you know, sort of, quote, unquote, trick the students. Um, but I always think it's important to, like, to see it in the larger context of what their job is. The SAT is an interesting thing because they have really three um, – every, every SAT test date that one student takes, there's three customers. There's the student, there's the parent of that student, and then there's the college to which that student is applying. The SAT is serving all three of those clients, uh, and so um, the for the student, it's here's your test to see whether you you know what you have you know show us what you got. Let's see what you got, and then the colleges can can sort of judge you based on that. For the parents, you know they're paying for it, so they're they're that important part of the equation. Of course, they want their students to do well, and the colleges need this information. You know, like they have a, a million. Kids with straight A's coming, coming at, at Harvard from all over the country, Harvard's like, I need something else. I need more data so so I can make my decision so I can, you know, choose the, the best um, or my most diverse um, student body.
1: It's interesting because I, I think back when I took the SAT, and and I don't know if this was accurate, but what we all thought was this was an additional avenue. Maybe you didn't get you know, a 4.0 for whatever reason, and this was another um, way to show the college board and to show the different universities that you had a capacity to succeed. So it was almost an additional um Uh, instrument for you and also for the colleges as well so you know you could show the opportunity opportunity. Um, it seems like that has shifted a bit uh, in that now it's just so standard and that's shifting again where we'll talk about that later where some colleges aren't taking it anymore it's not mandatory Um, but it seems like something else has developed around it within the last few decades as far as mostly people now are if they can afford to or find some way to do it are studying for the exam and that then also is another indicator for the colleges not the same one it was before but here's someone who can master this skill set and then Achieve at this type of of exam, so that helps them to do their job. Um, and we can talk about this now or later, but but whether or not the skills you need to succeed today um, in at college, and then even the bigger question in society. Are they being tested on the exam, and does that matter? I mean, and and I mean, the the next show we'll maybe do is is you know, it does college matter today? Are are creativity and adaptability, mm-hmm. analytical, practical, and persuasion those skills of flexibility? Are those something that that you need to succeed in college, and that are being taught in college to be able to succeed today?
0: Yeah, uh, so. What, what was the what was the question So I'm in just a the question um, in
1: there is if Oh, right. Sorry.
0: The like, the test is is, test is, like, is representative do
1: you feel of right. of of what you yes. do need to succeed in in college today?
0: Yeah, so I uh it's so interesting. I I remember um seeing this story about uh, someone was invited to speak at a a college in Connecticut. Um Middlebury maybe I can't remember the exact story but it was the author of uh, that really controversial book The Bell Curve I think his name's Charles Murray Um, and uh, he was the students protested and and I was just curious about the story so I looked into the story and I heard it was about Charles Murray who had written this book Um, and so then I did a little research on him and uh, found that he does he breaks down intelligence um, by race and stuff some really controversial stuff in there uh, but, but one of the things that he said about the SAT was that he was able to go to a really good college, maybe been, may been Harvard because he had the SAT scores. He went to like a no name high school that the Harvard would almost, you know, sort of an elite institution wouldn't even consider him a candidate, but because he had really good SAT scores, he was able to get in. So, um, you know, uh, What I found at that point, hearing this and reading this, was like, okay, here's someone who's very controversial, who might even be, you know, uh, have written something evil, done something, you know, sort of really something that I really disagree with, but he's, he's an example of what the SAT used to be. It used to be, okay, um, Harvard's really just uh, allowing people in from like Phillips Phillips Exeter and all these, you know, elite private high schools. Let's give these kids from these other high schools that don't have that prestige an opportunity to show what they, you know, their skills and get into some of these top tier colleges. So now, um, but I think you're right. I think that's changed. And um, largely, I think, you know, this is sort of the bad news for me because of people like me, you know, we go, I've been working in um, Los Angeles since uh, 2006 as a, as a SAT tutor. Um, and I don't really go South of the 10, you know, I'm up, I'm in Brentwood. I'm in the Palisades. I'm in Santa Monica. I'm in Beverly Hills. I'm in Bel Air. And so these are the kids that I'm, that I'm helping. So uh, the SAT in some respects has become just another tool for, you know, and, and SAT prep tutoring has become another tool for people already with privilege to um, sort of double down on that privilege and get into the uh, elite um, institutions. It's one of the reasons that I started the online course that I, that I have. Um, uh, I figured out a way to do all my instruction online and outside of the regular tutoring session, and that way I can charge a, a lower price point because I was really you – know, I loved the, – all the students that I worked with were phenomenal, all the parents – uh families were great but I really did want to start um serving an underprivileged population so with my new online model I'm able to you know I've got friends of mine I went to college with that I'm I'm tutoring their kids um I've even got some um I'm able to do some pro bono work now too so I have some kids on scholarship that I'm tutoring for for free through my online course um but you're really you're you're spot on it's you know, the SAT, I think, in the 60s, 70s, was like an opportunity for kids from from areas that may not be, you know, on you know Harvard and Princeton's radar for them to show what they got uh, to get in. But it has changed into um, almost something that just reinforces the status quo.
1: Well, I, as you talk, I'm I'm developing a new admiration for the SAT because I, I think of it as this bouncing ball whose intention is good, um, and, and it started that way, you know, back in the um, early 1900s, the late 1800s, when it was developed, it really was a reaction to what then happened again, maybe back in the 60s, as far as the the colleges were so elite in and the group that was allowed in was so small. Um, And and they had tests beginning in 1901 that tested Greek and Latin and physics, and it took five days. And you had to pay for a fee for advanced knowledge of the subject matter. So it really was keeping that funnel so small as to who could come in. And then um, when the IQ test began for military use, Brigham's test evolved into the SAT. And again, the IQ tests have a lot of controversy around them and why they were developed and um the ideas of uh variance in race and size of people's brains and their iqs and so you know that's a negative and yet the intention was to be able to open the funnel up a bit and allow people who otherwise would not be able to get into colleges to be able to be seen as people who could be successful um that again the ball is bouncing yet again to the question of you know what are we measuring and, and is what we're measuring accurate and, and the most important thing there was a um, study in 2003 at Yale and they say we did better at predicting college success than the current SAT and high school grade point average and we did better at reducing group differences um, this was done by Robert uh, Sternberg professor of psychology at Yale and they I think they called it the rainbow project I don't know if that helped them or hindered them but um, <laughs> um, but but that sort of even though this was shown to evaluate these skills of creativity and practicality and, and being able to analyze something. I mean, there were some cool, cool questions on there. You think of the current job interviews where they're like, OK, how many things could you do with this brick? Um, they were that sort of a, a question. Um, so maybe we can talk about that's just the beginnings of the history of, of bias a little bit because the there was definitely in the beginnings of the test and throughout this argument that the the popula- population you know it was was homogenous white males and the, the correlation to success was connected with their that and also their socioeconomic status what do you see happening now? Do you feel like the bias is, is, is less apparent? Is there more neutrality um, in your working with students across the board with this novel approach that you constructed? Are you seeing more of a neutral exam and, and bias being able to be eliminated with the students you work
0: with? I am with my students. Yeah, I have to give the College Board credit. The um, you know I think we all know the classic example of the analogy – from back in the 80s, it was um, it involved the word regatta, uh, so very, very, uh, you know, how many um, kids from underprivileged um, high schools have a crew team and will know what a regatta is. So, but since then, the SAT and the College Board have have, have really done um, a lot of work to try and um, take the bias out of the tests. And in uh, you know, as I'm as I'm working with a, a pretty diverse uh, pool of students now. I can see that 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 bias is, I I can't really see it anymore. Um, Even down to like the names, you know, in the word problems when there are um, names of of people that they're, you know, hypothetical situations. The names are, it's not just John and Sarah now. Uh, You know, there's uh, names uh, from diverse backgrounds. So I I can see the effort that they're putting into trying to make it an accessible test um, accessible for people from a wide uh, and diverse um, um, array of backgrounds. And, and the students that I work with, you know, they're they're more differentiated now by um, are they doing better on the math and science versus the English and reading, or are they doing better on the English and reading? It's not so much, you know, there's I don't see my students at least separated according to socioeconomic background, but more by their cognitive um, preferences. Are they sequential thinkers or nonlinear thinkers? That's more of the diversity that I'm seeing. I'm seeing now. So I, I think, um, and this is just from, you know, it's a very small um, pool of students that I work with, um, uh, compared with, you know, around the country, but from what I see they do, they've done a lot of really good work to try and, um, and erase that bias. Another thing that the college board has done, I, I see it more with the college board than with the ACT, um, the College Board is now giving the SAT at some high schools during the week so um, the SAT used to be offered only on Saturday, six Saturdays out of the year. Uh, now they're offering it on those Saturdays, but they're also offering it at, at certain schools during, uh, you know, during the school week, like on a Wednesday. So that, you know, kids who may have may have part time jobs after school or during the weekends wouldn't be able to make it to the SAT. Uh, they It's just incorporated right into their school day. Um, so I see that they've also teamed up with the Khan Academy to offer free resources online to, to prep, you know, so everything is, you know, for a motivated student, um, and that might be the key, right? A motivated student, all of the material is right there for them to, uh, to work with. Um, but I have a lot of students that come to me after having tried to use those materials. It's really it's, it's difficult to teach yourself based on the videos from the Khan Academy, but at least I can see the SAT you know, making the effort to make all of the information accessible. Like you said, you, know, <laughs> you used to have to pay to even get a glimpse of what material is going to be on the test. Now they're offering everything for free online. They have eight practice tests um, on the college board sites. Um, they're sort of bending over backwards trying to make the material accessible to everyone.
1: It seems like too as as you say that it's it's difficult to teach yourself how to think differently, which is something you've mentioned again and again. That that so much of your coaching really is how do you approach this differently than you typically would? And it's funny because the college board has long claimed that the SAT is uncoachable. I don't think they're claiming that anymore. um, because they are even setting (laughs) up avenues for people to be coached. And if you look at the history just in the last 30 years, 20, 30 years, the SAT has changed a great deal as well. And it seems to be in the same vein as trying to make it more fair and more representative to a more diverse spectrum of test takers. Um, yeah. What has been, as you've of, been coaching, what have you seen in that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So One of the really um, important developments or um, – Things that they have eliminated from the SAT uh, are the more vocabulary type questions, um, analogies, synonyms, like synonyms. All, all, of, all of that; ty- those types of questions are gone from the SAT. And I the think the those, dreaded
1: drilling antonyms. <laughs>
0: you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> horrifying, right? And I think that really, you know, for a student. I think that really um, opens up the SAT to uh, a, a wider, more diverse um, body of students because, you know, um, your school, your high school, may not have taught you know Dickens or whatever that uh, you would have had to have read to have known the definition of some of these really arcane words. So there's and, a can
1: of, there's a uh, episode of uh, fresh off the boat, where she's like, "You must read the Canterbury Tales because it's going to be on the SAT."
0: <laughs> yeah, so they've uh, they and they've experimented. They went, um, you know, they increased it from sixteen hundred to twenty four hundred points, and they had three sections at one point, and now it's back to uh, to just two. <clears throat> um, they had an the first the essay when the first essay they put on the SAT. Um, was when they had increased the score to 2,400. Um, but um, that essay, which was a little bit formulaic, like I could teach a kid who, who didn't have good writing skills a very simple structure that they could use to uh, to ace that, that portion. Um, the new SAT, um, or uh, the current SAT, has a an essay that is actually very closely aligned with something you might do in college. Um, you have to read a passage and then analyze the passage's argument based on its logic, um, based on its um, stylistic elements, uh, appeals to emotion, that kind of thing. Uh, so you're really doing some anal- analytical work, very similar to the type of analytical work you would be doing in a in a college uh, college class. Now, unfortunately. Or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. Uh, the essay score is the score that the colleges look at the least. So it's the one that I spend the least amount of time on uh, in prepping. So let's uh, talk about s-
1: a scoring a little bit, because that's something that's yeah. completely different now. And, and why did yeah. they change the way they scored? And is it really a, a change in any manner other than just a different set of numbers?
0: So, uh, the, the, the arrangement of the test is different. So, when the SAT was out of 2400, uh, there were 10 sections, and each one was pretty short, you know, like 20 minutes, uh, 15 minutes. Um, now, instead of 10 sections, they only have four. Um, there's a uh, reading section at the very beginning, then there's a writing and language section, which is like um, grammar and rhetoric. Um, and then there's a math no calculator section, and then there's a math calculator section. So they've decreased the number of sections, just m- but made them longer. Uh, and I think when they went up to 2,400 in the 10 short se- uh, sections, they lost a lot of their business to the ACT, which is a little bit it was just more, more simple with just four sections. So I think one of the impetuses for um, them coming back to the four section was so that they could start uh, competing again with the ACT. Um, the material itself um, is a little bit different. Again, there's no more um, vocabulary questions, which there were on the 2400 version. Um, <clears throat> the first sections of the, the first parts of the reading sections were five to eight, like fill in the blank. Um, uh, problems that had vocabulary terms that you had to know to fill in um, the blank. So although um, you so should still changed.
1: read Catcher in the Rye, but you don't have to necessarily <laughs> for the exam.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have to read Catcher in the, in the Rye more so that you can, you know, discu- discuss like the, um, the theme or like what was really driving Holton Caulfield, like was it? Um, was it his, his brother's death that he had never gotten over or uh, why did he think everyone was phony? Was he just an insecure teenager? You know? So asking those questions and developing your arguments based on evidence from the text that's the real. That's what the SAT is trying to emulate. They're trying to. They're trying to have their test more accurately reflect that. The thinking skills. Okay. Can you take um, a, a reading passage that you read, and then can you get in there and analyze and answer these questions that really ask you to get a very deep understanding? Can you intuit? Can you say, okay, based on what I know about the author, how would the author feel about this other thing? That isn't even mentioned in the passage. So, th- and those I think are the that's the better thing to be testing versus you know do you know what clandestine means? I think um, the the that thinking that where you have to really analyze it, t- it requires really in depth re- uh, reading comprehension skills. That's really what what's going to be a predictor of success in college versus whether you have you know run through the um, the note cards enough times. Although to be fair, <clears throat> you know. I see a lot of kids that can – you know, 1,600 on the SAT that will fail in college and, and other kids who will get, you know, maybe 1,200, 1,100 and do really, really well uh, because I, uh, I, I don't want to discount the value of hard work. You know, like a kid who's got the discipline to go through a stack of 500 <laughs> vocabulary cards and memorize all of those um, uh, is uh, has a a, a really – unique and valuable skill set, that discipline is really important versus the kid who's just supernaturally um, bright that can just, you know, memorize, can know, will read one book that'll have one, the word clandestine in it once and then know it forever. That kid that's naturally smart, he might, he or she might not um, excel in college because they haven't been tested. You know, college is, college is tough. Uh, part of getting through college is going is going to require not just that you have you know, natural ability your skills and knowledge but that you have that discipline um, and i think the kid that that sits and memorizes those vocabularies, words you know if i think that's that's a kid that's really going to excel at college because of that discipline
1: well and how do you with your students teach that analytical skill because i'm thinking of the irony of the current status of of the majority of public education and maybe some or most private as well teach, well, more public, I would say, but teaching to the test, and this idea that somehow they're doing a service to these kids by, well, I don't even know if that part's true, but let's just say, let's give them that, that they think they're doing a service to these kids to to teach them to take tests, because then they will um, do well on their ISATs and their other standardized tests within school, and then hopefully then be able to do well on the ACT and the SAT, which we're sort of divining that that's not necessarily true, especially with the revisions of the tests. But these kids are not being taught to be analytical and creative thinkers. Um, They really are being taught to memorize and then, you know, old school memorize and regurgitate. I mean back to the the beginnings of our industrial revolution and the education that that followed it as far as follow directions, learn this and be able to recite.
0: Yeah, I find like the so I think teaching to the test will will divide into the two two different types of tests. So when I was a teacher in the classroom, um, you know, I had to prepare my uh, my students for the state testing. So that test that test. Uh, so you know, when I was teaching like um, algebra two, for example, uh, there are there were like twenty six California state standards that I was supposed to. Um teach my kids every year. now, I would get through on a in a good year, I might get through like thirteen of them I might get through half of them the The standards are so ridiculously um extensive um, that uh, it's impossible to get through all of those standards. so it's you're already sort of set up to fail, right? so I have you know, however many, 120, I forget how many school days I had during the year. And then I had to divide that school year among those 26 standards and then decide, like, how deep do I want to go into each of of these pieces of material? Um, It it was really, 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 really challenging. Um, But I never really uh, taught to the test. I just, you know, I wanted to get the material uh, I wanted to teach my my students the material. I wanted to challenge their um creative problem solving skills. I wanted them to develop new skills and i also I wanted them to develop a discipline for math. Um there's a whole aspect of math that's that re- revolves around discipline, even like how you organize your work on the page so um so I wouldn't really teach to the test i my my uh, my theory was always if they're doing well in the class then they'll do fine on the test uh, but I know that there are a lot of uh, um, a lot of um, Uh, teachers that feel when they're faced with the 26 standards and an impossible task ahead of them. And sometimes their job uh, depends, or at least, you know, the the status of the school depends on the kids doing well on those, on those standardized tests. And would it be more advantageous, especially if, again, it's not going to matter whether you know how a zero is related to a factor in quadratic equations. If we taught a little less material, but, a more in depth in, in the skills. Like what if, what if we got, uh, we took a really deep dive into these, um, into these uh, um, topics versus trying to cover like so many of them. So that's one, that's one aspect of teaching. When I hear teaching to the test, it's really two very different um, uh, tests. So the one test is the state test that teachers are teaching to in the classroom, and I think that's a big problem. Uh, the other one is teaching to the test, like teaching to the SAT or teaching to the ACT. And very few teachers in the classroom are doing that. Um, it's just not worth their time. There's no, they don't have. There's no reward for them if their students do well on the SAT or ACT. It's not, it doesn't correspond. Uh, with their job directly, although indirectly, of course. Um, but also, it's hard to teach to the SAT and the ACT. The SAT and ACT are more, um, demand more critical thinking, demand um, higher level thinking skills. So um, I think the SAT, that's why I love the SAT and ACT, is because they're different kinds of test tests. And teaching, if you were to teach to the SAT, that would actually be some pretty good education because the SAT re- requires these higher-level thinking skills. They don't require like the regurgitation. They're asking um, they're asking about the material from their classrooms, but they're asking it in a new way. Okay, so yeah, okay, let's let's use the slope-intercept form of an equation. But what will you do if I throw you a point that doesn't have any numbers in it? What if I throw you the point like two comma x, and I'm I'm going to present you with some other. I'm going to give you a graph. And then now you have to piece these things together. It's all things you've, you've uh, you've seen before in your algebra class, but you've never quite seen it like this. Uh, let's see what you can do with this. I think that's, <laughs> I'm such a testing nerd. I get so excited. Like, well, that's no, so it's so good because you it's know? not just testing. It's, so it's so as good. you say, it's
1: the basis of an effective education because you didn't, yeah. to be successful, you don't have, you can't just have learned, memorized the the equation and, and what you're supposed to yeah. do to plug in the numbers. You have to understand the relationship between the different aspects in the equation and the whys behind it right? You have to understand that to be able to manipulate it. And that hasn't been the way our educational system has worked for a very long time. So no, I think like, I'm I'm right now loving the SAT. (laughs) I'm having (laughs) a new fan. You're describing that question still making me all tense and I kind of want to (laughs) cry. But, but so I'm going to ask you.
0: So so teaching to the SAT would be great because I find myself as an SAT tutor, um, filling in the gaps that the student never, never learned. Like some, and some of them are just basic skills. Like I, I would say nine out of 10 of my students have no idea what a semicolon is. It just They just have never been, or they taught, we were taught maybe once in fifth grade grammar. I remember grammar when I was in elementary school, it was like right after recess. And we, I mean, you know, we're coming all sweaty from the playground, and now you're going to throw like commas and nouns and subjects and predicates at us. Like, no one wanted it. was just, and even the teacher was like bored, right? But for me, like I love grammar. Like, <laughs> like well, I love the semicolon.
1: There. I'm like, yeah, mixed on the comma, but yeah. the semicolon, I love.
0: Yeah, so great, right? So anyway, so like we we're here when, when, when the education system has failed and the uh, kids have slipped through the cracks. And the skills aren't there that really should be there, like a, a solid sense of grammar um, should be there for, you know, uh, as you head into into college. We're here, I, I think of us, you know, the test prep professionals as the people there to catch you and fill in the little missing pieces that you'll need to be successful in college.
1: So I want to ask you for, for the last question, where do you think the ball will bounce next? And and my thinking has completely transformed as I've been speaking to you, because originally I was like, yeah, I hate the SAT, I hate those standardized tests, and yet now I'm seeing the value and... I'm nervous because the pendulum is swinging um, away from it in the sense of there are a number of colleges that are starting to say, you know, we're going to make the the um, these tests optional. And they have good reasons. There's close to 1,000 schools now. And um, one of the schools, um, Springfield, said our mission is to give students an opportunity to pursue an education. We want to give every student the opportunity and standardized tests narrow it a little bit. Um, and they say the reason that, that many students don't do well is because they don't have the resources to hire tutors um, or to pay for SAT preparation and classes. And so they've now, the schools that have stopped using it or using it as optional, have seen an uptick in applications um, and in diversity, and that they've tracked that these kids, you know, do do as well Um in college, so what do you see as the next bounce for the test, um, or or is it going to kind of stay where it is for a while and let the playing field sort of even out?
0: Well, I like to think of it um, in uh, sort of a reality, like in in a real world situation. So I think that um, the, the schools that are the most desirable to get into my, I just was like boasting about my grammar and then I butchered that sentence. <laughs> the schools that are most attractive that everyone wants to get into are always going to receive like um, way more applications than they have space for in their incoming freshman class. So those schools are always going to need something to use as a bench- benchmark for, for, um, for judging the students that are applying and for um, uh, uh, tools to aid them in discerning, you know, which students should be granted admission and which students shouldn't. So something will be around to help them with that. Um, a grade point average from high schools is, um, is not reliable. You know, I, I, I do still um, tutor subject, um, uh, subject areas from time to time. And it's a little bit shocking to me how, um, how the, the term AP has been watered down. It used to be when I was a kid, it was like, you know, can you get into a AP class? Now it's how many AP classes should I take? There's a school here in Los Angeles where every junior and senior has to take AP English. That doesn't, the, the term AP is losing its meaning if you have every one of your students taking an AP class. It should be like it's supposed to be a college level class. And the, the work that I'm helping uh, my student with, it's not even like rigorous high school level. So um, so anyway, so that's a short aside. But no, no, but point I think average, it's important.
1: And the fact that a uh, 4.0 at one school is not um, a 4.0 at another school.
0: Hundred percent. It's just the reality of the situation, right? So the the, the colleges will need something, some some sort of tool, uh, whether it's the SAT or um, I really like the the article that you sent me about um, the that you mentioned earlier about the Yale researchers that had developed a different. A different kind of test. I think when I read it, it was one of the things that they, oh yeah, the Rainbow Project, one of the things that they asked was they gave a um, a cartoon and then they asked the students to put a caption on the cartoon. So that's some, that's, that's, that's really good stuff. That's great. You know, that's really, um, that's really interesting. It's really innovative and it, and it, it does seem to address not only the, the skills you'll need in college, but the skills you'll need in the workforce. Uh, you, you've heard so many stories of people who have been, you know, huge successes in the business world who have never gone to college. Um, is there a way for us to start testing for and teaching those kinds of creative skills um, where, you know, so that that kind of a question where they, they see a comic, okay, now caption it, is a really cool um, a really fun and interesting way. It makes me really curious, like, okay, what else could we do with the testing process? What other kinds of, of questions like that can we use to really um, uh, test those kinds of skills and also fill in, uh, give kids who have maybe different kinds of intellectual ability an, uh, uh, an opportunity to shine. I have, I have one student that um uh, doing subject support with for chemistry and geometry and it's really hard for her to to get the sequential nature of solving an equation but i see on every page of her notebook there's a drawing and they're like the most beautiful drawings i've ever seen you know like a dog with like panting and then there's a silhouette of something and the, the the fact that she can create these drawings and have you know the size of the ear on the silhouette be proportional to the size of the head which I wouldn't be able to do and I'm like a huge math nerd but she can have this she can make that happen the shading uh, you know every once in a while I tried like drawing was like like sort of like a tiny little avocation I could never figure out how to shade like how do you figure out where to like put like the lines and and put the smudges and stuff, but it was perfect. Everything about this was perfect. And that really does um, reveal and signify a very deep intelligence uh, on her part that isn't reflected in her um, struggling with, you know, stoichiometry and, well, and, and a perceptibility,
1: and right? Kirkland. A depth of perception that allows her to yeah, see that sure. and see reality in a different way. And so it's making me think you said, you know, the, the colleges that everyone wants to go to. Is that part of the problem, and is that something that you discuss with your students um, more now maybe than before as far as there have become, you know, the good colleges? These are the good colleges. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what the kids you're working with think make a college good, and is there a problem that you see lies there?
0: Yeah, I think there is a problem. Um what makes a college good in the eyes of my students is the prestige of it. Um if it requires a higher SAT or ACT score to get in, then that's a better college. And what I've found um there is a general trend. Like if you're if you're going to you know, I went to William and Mary in, in Virginia, um, and my classes were really hard. They were really tough. Um and I, am uh, doing, you know, I have another student who's going to a state, you know, state school here in in Los Angeles, and the the classes are are much easier, but it it almost doesn't really matter. So it does matter in a in a certain to a certain extent what college you go to. For well, well, let me talk about it from two different perspectives. From one perspective, from the prestige perspective, yeah, if you're going to um, you know, Harvard or or, or Yale or, or Princeton or or even some of the great, you know, public colleges like William & Mary, and <laughs> University of Virginia, then you, you're you going to have like, um, you know, you'll have more access after you graduate. Uh, like a, you'll be a better applicant to certain jobs and, and so forth. Um, so that's one perspective. The perspective that I like to look at it from, though, is the perspective of what's going to be the greatest, the best fit for you so that you can develop your skills and your knowledge to the best of your ability. Um, I really subscribe to the, um, the um, challenge and support model and that the right balance of challenge and support is how we optimize human development. There's a, um, uh, Nevitt Sanford, I think, was the guy's name back in the 60s who did a study on that. Uh, so I'm always looking for the right balance of challenge and support. Some I don't want some of my students to go to a a university that that's going to require uh, skills that they don't have or that's going to be too much of a challenge. That's when that's when we as humans start to fail. Is when we have too much challenge. Uh, so that's the basics of the challenge and support model. If you have too much challenge, you're going to fail. If you don't have enough challenge, then you're not going to be um, you're going to be bored. You're not going to, you'll have too much support and you'll you won't you won't want to learn and grow. So I'm always looking for that right balance of those two for my students. And the, it, exactly what you said, they're always just looking what's the best school I can get into, um, and then I go there uh, when that school might not be the best fit for them. So I just always try to encourage you know. Um, uh, the right fit versus the, the best possible college.
1: And then that, yeah, the definition of best, right? That is then the best possible college, yeah. college for them. Yeah, yeah, then
0: that yeah. Is. exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, not the most prestigious, I guess, mm-hmm. was what I, what I would say. Like, let's look for the place where you're going to thrive. Like, let's look at the long, long-term plan here. The long-term plan is for you you to be the happiest, healthiest, human uh possible that you're learning you're growing it's exciting you're learning new things but you're not failing we're not placing challenges in front of you that are insurmountable that are just too you know like above your pay grade for for lack of a better um better term so uh, let's look for the best spot where you're going to really thrive um and i think most of my students just sort of naturally end up at, at those spots you know
1: well they're lucky to have yeah. you and we were very lucky to have you today on that got me thinking I, i'm so appreciative so enlightening and encouraging so both i want to thank you so yeah. much joe real pleasure yeah for sure
0: yeah yeah you're welcome
1: well thanks so much all right Ellie, okay. was so much okay. fun it was great thanks joe have a great day okay you too okay bye